Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Psychedelic drugs are a huge deal right now. The FDA is deciding whether to approve MDMA, also known as ecstasy, for treating post-traumatic stress disorder. But researchers are discovering that psychedelics might be able to do a lot more than that. They just might be the master key that unlocks a whole array of other conditions, from stroke and autism to deafness and blindness. I'm Sigal Samuel, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Gould Dolan. For the past few years, Dolan's lab has been busy experimenting with psychedelics. She's dosed octopuses with MDMA. She's given mice LSD. And she's found that all psychedelics have something special in common. They can hit a kind of reset button in the brain, temporarily bringing it back to a childlike state where the mind is super malleable and good at learning new things. So she wondered, what can psychedelics do for human brains? Can they help people relearn all sorts of things? For example, can they help stroke patients to move or walk again, even if the stroke occurred years earlier? I know this sounds too good to be true, but Dolan is a serious scientist publishing groundbreaking evidence, which is why she was recently named to the Future Perfect 50, Vox's annual list of trailblazers working on solutions to some of the world's biggest problems. If Dolan's hunch about psychedelics is right, they could change life for millions of people. So, Gould Dolan, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm guessing this is probably a really exciting time for you generally because we're seeing this, you know, like huge renaissance in terms of the surge of interest in psychedelics. Like, what what is that like for you? <laughs> I have to say it's great. The timing has been amazing because, you know, when I first started my lab 10 years ago and I, I wanted to work on this um, as, you know, one of the main focuses of the lab— it was hard, you know, they, they were still sort of 
fringe and a little bit taboo. And and I remember trying to get funding to study psychedelics and the program officers at the NIH were just like, what are you doing? This will never be approved for clinical trials. Even if it works, it will never make it into clinics. And, um, you know, a couple nature papers later and everybody's excited and, you know, everything is moving forward to essentially get FDA approval and that is basically turning all of those people who said, no, 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 is making them stop and think, well, you know, I guess so. <laughs> I guess maybe this is a thing that's happening now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious, like for you personally, how you initially got passionate about this field, because probably most kids don't just grow up saying, when I grow up, I want to be a psychedelics researcher. <laughs> Well, you know, when I was in college, I designed my own major, and it was comparative perspectives on the mind, and I was, you know, really interested in consciousness, and, you know, you're asking the big questions, and I wanted the big answers, and as I started looking at things from the perspective of philosophy and linguistics and art and um, neuroscience, I started to feel a little bit despondent, that I would never figure it out. And one day, I remember I took this class called Drugs, Brain, and Behavior. In that class, we learned about how every single psychoactive drug is mimicking an existing neurotransmitter in the brain, and that's why you're able to even sense it at all. And so when I saw the serotonin molecule side by side with the LSD molecule, it just blew my mind, and I and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I was like, wow, you know, you can change consciousness just by taking this little molecule and having it mimic serotonin in a slightly off way. That's incredible. And that, to me, was the first evidence that we were going to solve consciousness by studying molecules and synapses and circuits. And I was deeply blown away by it. But then at that time, you know, it was still pretty taboo. It wasn't considered serious to study those kinds of things. And it was going to be hard to get funding. And so I kind of put that on the back burner. And so something like 15, 20 years later, <laughs> when I finally got around to opening up my own lab, I was like, all right, now it's my turn to do whatever I want. And this is what I want to work on. Okay, I want to come back later to this question of your like amazing optimism earlier on about like, we're going to solve consciousness. <laughs> but first of all, okay, so you've opened your own lab. You've got the Dolan Lab. And one of the things that you've become known for researching is something called critical periods. So what is that? So a critical period is this window of time where you're just really, really sensitive to the environment around you. And you can learn from that environment and what you learn during that time period kind of becomes locked in for the lifetime. It's a really strong period of learning and sensitivity to your environment. So you're noticing things and you're learning from them in a really strong way. Hmm. And critical periods, they were originally discovered in 1935. And the first critical period that was described was the critical period for imprinting behavior in geese. So this is that behavior where the little geese right after hatching will form an attachment to whatever's moving around in their environment. And so typically that would be their mom, but, you know, sometimes it's a kooky scientist or a model airplane. <laughs> and Conrad Lorenz, who did those experiments, 
he called that period a critical period because they only form that attachment to whatever is in their environment within hours after hatching. After that, they can have all kinds of things moving around in their environment and they don't attach to them. And so that window is called the critical period. So generally when we say critical period, are we talking about a really critical, crucial period in an early stage of development for learning something? There are lots of them, and they come on at different times in development. You know, within the first 48 hours, vision is a little bit later, and somatosensory touch is a little bit earlier. You know, motor learning goes on for much later. And then the one that we discovered actually peaks at the peak of puberty. The one we discovered is another social critical period, but this time instead of the critical period for attachment to mom, it's the critical period for attachment to group members in your social group. If you manage as an adult to reopen a critical period, what does it actually feel like to have a critical period open? Like, can you tell that that's, you're in that? Ask yourself this. When you were a kid, did you know you were a kid? Did you know that you were good at learning, that it was easy for you to learn? Probably not. It just felt like this is what being conscious as a five-year-old feels like, right? You didn't really question it. It just feels like normal. But I think reopening probably feels different because it's like you're an adult, you're living in your adult consciousness, and then to be sort of hurled back into the way it feels to be a kid, you know, probably does feel different. Mm. I'm beginning to think that what it feels like to be in that altered state of consciousness, that whooshy, weird feeling Mm -hmm. of that altered state of consciousness, I think is just what it feels like to reopen all your critical periods. After this short break, we'll talk about what happens when you give Molly to animals. Really. We'll be right back. Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. 
Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. a little bit about your lab's research more recently on using psychedelics to reopen these critical periods. And I want to start with the octopuses. Tell me about the experiments with the octopus. What was going on there? (laughs) What we were doing with the octopus experiment was kind of more similar to what most other researchers who are studying psychedelics have done. They're just looking at what happens during the trip, right? So they're looking at the acute effects of the drug. And we already knew from a bunch of human studies, a bunch of rodent studies, that when you give MDMA to humans and mice and rats, then they become pro-social and they, you know, prefer to spend time with other animals. But octopuses are not like humans and they're not like mice insofar as, you know, they are not social, right? They they are actually viciously asocial. And this species that we were working on, the California two-spot octopus, is like that as well. You know, outside of brief periods when they're mating, they will attack another octopus that's in the same tank with them. But they have the neural circuitry for social behavior and that maybe a drug like MDMA could bring that back. And so that was the hypothesis we were testing. And remarkably, that's exactly what happened. You basically dosed some octopuses with MDMA. And what did you see? So we were measuring how much time they spent in one of three chambers, one a center neutral chamber, another chamber that had a little toy, you know, Star Wars figurine in it, and then the other side had another octopus in it. And before they got the MDMA, they spent all of their time with the Star Wars toy, not because the Star Wars toy was so interesting, but because it was maximally far away from the other octopus, Mm -hmm. right? So they do like one lap, see where everything was, and then spend almost all of their time as far away from the other octopus as possible. After MDMA, they completely changed their body posture and they became sort of relaxed and almost draping all eight arms over the flower pot that had the other octopus in it. Like hugging? That's kind of what it looked like. And, you know, there were other things that they did that we weren't specifically measuring. We saw them doing a lot of play behavior and back flips. Another one looked like it was sort of dancing like a ballerina. Their postures were very, very altered from what their normal state was. Basically sounds like human beings at a rave. (laughs) I try and resist the temptation to anthropomorphize. But yes, it, it was very impressive the way that they behaved. And what this experiment told us is, is that maybe that sort of 
level of understanding the brain isn't really telling us as much about brain function as we thought because all those studies that you've seen where, um, you know, somebody gives a drug and then they point to a human brain image and they say, look, blood flow to this brain region increased and therefore this brain region is involved in that psychedelic drug. But an octopus doesn't have any of those brain regions. It doesn't even have a cortex. And yet it was able to respond to a totally synthetic compound that it did not co-evolve with in basically the same way that a human or a, a mouse does. And so what this means is, is that the mechanism of action is happening at the level of molecules and that the anatomy is just an accident of evolutionary history and this has rocked my world. Okay, so it sounds like this octopus experiment taught you a lot, but you weren't satisfied with just the octopus. Your lab also went on to do some experiments with giving psychedelics to mice, right? That's right. You know, first we discovered that there's this new critical period, which, you know, we we kind of knew must exist based on the human studies. But in order to formally show that it exists, we characterized it in mice. And, you know, really, I have to give a shout out here to my postdoc, Roman Nardu, who was both tenacious and, you know, just a workaholic who got it done, right? Like he did this experiment in 900 mice, you know, 500 males, 400 females. And that was just figure one. Wow. Um, okay, so he was, he was a really dedicated to this. This idea that, you know, there's this change across development and how the animals are able to learn from their social environment. And, you know, by doing it in so many animals, he was able to formally characterize a, a new critical period, which is a big deal all by itself. So hold on. So how did you see this critical period exactly? There was something with the bedding, right? Yeah. <laughs> Paint a picture for us. Basically, this is a behavioral critical period, just like the first critical period. And so what we're doing is we're saying, okay, here's two new types of bedding that you've never been on before. And then we're going to pair one of them with hanging out with your buddies. And then the other one we're going to pair with hanging out by yourself. Juvenile animals, so around like teenager, puberty, a little bit older, they form that learn association really well. They really love hanging out with their friends and they will spend significantly more time in the bedding that they associate with hanging out with their friends compared to the bedding that they spend by themselves. But as they get older, they don't do that anymore. And they spend equal amounts of times in both bedding. And, you know, the, the reward value of those social interactions just kind of goes to neutral. I think the real world example of this is sort of like, you know, if you have generally really good taste in interior decorating, but you have this really weird affinity for green shag carpet, and it turns <laughs> out that your favorite grandma had green shag carpet, you, mm. you know, you don't necessarily know that that's why you like it, but you just, it just feels cozy and homey. And mm -hmm. so you form that association when you were young and you hang on to it for the rest of your life. So in your experiment, you gave the mice MDMA and you gave some mice cocaine as a control. Uh -huh. Now, what did you see? Because you said you were able to reopen a critical period. How could you tell that a critical period had been reopened? In the animals where we gave MDMA, and in this case, we're giving MDMA and then we're waiting for 48 hours and then we measure 
the social reward learning again. So we measure their ability to form this association between the bedding that they associate with social versus the bedding they associate with isolation. And these are adult animals. So in adult animals, you know, we already said the critical period is closed, so they don't form that learned association anymore. But in the animals that were pre-treated with MDMA, they were able to learn that association just like they were a teenager again. So we returned them to their teenage levels of learning after we gave them the MDMA. And this did not happen if we gave them cocaine instead. To me, this seems really related to, you know, what's called in the psychedelic world, set and setting. So set being your mental state or your intentions, your expectations going into a trip, and setting being your physical environment. So I think that for me, looking at your results initially, I might have just thought, oh, the mechanism that makes psychedelics open critical periods, it's just a neurochemical one. Like, hey, presto, it'll happen automatically, you know? But it sounds like the opening of a critical period is maybe just as susceptible to set and setting as the rest of a trip? Yes, you got it. You nailed it. Just like the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy requires psychotherapy as the context to get the cure and that, you know, it's not that you're taking MDMA and going to a rave and getting cured for PTSD. That would be amazing. (laughs) It would be amazing and probably happens for a few people. But for most people, that's not what's happening. Up until, you know, psychedelics came on the scene, I think the the dominant model for how drugs work with the brain is the biochemical one, right? So we have Mm -hmm. this model for the last 50 years or so that depression is just a biochemical imbalance in serotonin. And Mm -hmm. all we have to do to cure depression is to restore that biochemical imbalance. But what our results are suggesting is is that no, if you want to cure these neuropsychiatric diseases like PTSD, what you need is the learning model. So Mm. the biochemical imbalance model versus the learning model. And I really think that the psychedelics are telling us that it's the learning model that is responsible for these remarkable therapeutic effects that last for years and years and years after just one to three doses, right? So rather than the biochemical imbalance model, which essentially medicalizes people for life, you have to take a pill for, you know, as long as your depression symptoms last, and all it's doing is treating the symptoms, the psychedelic model and this critical period reopening explanation is saying, no, no, what we're doing is restoring the ability to learn, to unlearn those patterns of behavior that you built around that trauma. And that is what's going to give you the durable therapy that's going to last forever, potentially. Can you briefly spell out for us, what do you mean by the learning model? So the learning model is essentially that when you give a psychedelic drug, you are pairing that with psychotherapy, which is the thing that you're learning, right? And so it's sort of the difference between giving somebody a pill and expecting that the next day that they'll be able to speak German um, or giving them a pill and expecting that the next day they can go to a class and learn how to speak German, right? And so Mm -hmm. we hear this a lot from the patients that they will say things like, you know, I had this big epiphany during my trip, 
But really, the therapy started the day after. The real work was in reincorporating those insights that I had during the journey into all of the other patterns of my life and to really understand the world through the lens of this epiphany. Should therapists be like really making more use of that time? I definitely think so. I think treat this like the way that we treat surgery, right? So when somebody has a heart attack, you know, we do the surgery, the open heart surgery, we remove the clog. And then afterwards, the patients are on bed rest for, you know, typically a couple weeks at least after the surgery because the heart, after it's had an injury like that, it's very soft and malleable. And if you do too much rigorous exercise, the blood can just blow through the heart tissue and, you know, cause a a fatal heart attack, right? And so the way that we should really be thinking about what we're doing with psychedelics is that it's open mind surgery and Hmm. that, you know, we do an eight-hour-long treatment that enables the patient to remove that clot from their way of thinking about themselves and their relationship to the world. But then afterwards, they're going to be in this vulnerable state for weeks. This is just for psychiatric stuff, but, you know, as we start thinking about what other critical periods we might open, you know, I'm imagining that they go to, like, physical therapy camp if they're trying to reopen a motor critical period, et cetera. I saw a study actually that was doing this kind of in the context of vision with lazy eye. At first, it might seem really, really wild to someone that if a person has had lazy eye for like years and years, how could it work that a psychedelic could change that? Yeah, yeah. There were two papers that came out where they used ketamine and they used it sort of back-to-back-to-back-to-back, so six times back-to-back ketamine, was able to reopen this ocular dominance plasticity critical period is very much in line with our finding that, you know, ketamine kind of works not that well because it only keeps the critical period open for a short amount of time. But if you stagger it and did six times two hours, essentially six times ketamine is equal to roughly one LSD. It's very, very provocative. And my understanding is that you were so excited about this that you started this new project called Fathom to kind of get at, wait, what could the implications be for people with other kinds of of stuff they're dealing with, such as stroke patients? Yeah, so the Fathom is spelled with a PH, and so it's, you know, psychedelic healing, adjunct therapy, harnessing open malleability. And, you know, once I had this idea that these are the master keys, I went around talking to anybody who was working on any critical period. And I was like, do you want to try and open it? I think we've got the way. (laughs) And they were like, that'll never work. And I'd be like, come on, it's worth a couple months. Don't you want to try? You know, and and basically... I was talking to my friend, John Krakauer, who uh, we were at like a graduate student recruitment party and we had both had a couple glasses of wine and he was like, oh, we'll try it. That sounds great. (laughs) And so he's a clinician, right? And so he was immediately like, you know, even if it doesn't work in mice, I like this idea. It has legs. There's a lot of mechanistic overlap with how we're thinking about reopening this critical period for stroke, which basically motor learning, just like other critical periods, it closes as you get older, but you can reopen that motor learning critical period tragically when you have a stroke. 
The brain is like trying to adapt to its new situation. To its new situation, exactly. But then it closes again. And so if you don't get like the right kind of physical therapy within two months after having a stroke, the extra physical therapy isn't really going to change or could give you much more improvement after that. And so mm. when I came to John and said, look, I think even for those people who their critical period closed a year ago, they had their stroke, you know, a year and a half ago, I think we can use these drugs to reopen them and then give them physical therapy as, you know, the paired adjunct to the psychedelic, then we'll be able to restore this ability to learn. You know, we both got really, really excited about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, this is a theory and we could be wrong. The devil is in the details. But, you know, if we're right about this critical period, then there's no reason why we wouldn't be able to achieve those same victories in stroke patients. Amazing. And I think you've also talked about potential therapeutic benefits when it comes to deafness, autism, many other things. Yeah, basically, the reason we have critical periods is because there aren't enough genes in the genome to encode every single behavior that we might need to do, right? And so mostly what the genes are encoding is the ability to learn from our environment and to learn the things that we need in order to survive in whatever environment we were born in. And so most diseases of the brain are some kind of failure to learn or bad learning or bad environment that made, you know, the conditions for learning less than ideal. And so being able to restore learning and create better conditions for learning under those circumstances of restored learning, I think is a major therapeutic opportunity. More of my conversation with Gould Dolan after one more short break. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? This week on The Pitch... AI versus models. My co-founder and I have never been represented when shopping online. This lack of representation in e-commerce drives down conversion rate, leads to a high return rate, and is a problem for both consumers and brands. This is where Flock comes in. I'm looking at a lip, a lip product here. Yep. So it's got some up-close uh, pictures of lips and lipstick with different skin tones, different nose shapes. Is that AI generated? It's fully AI generated. Got it. Mm. It's an existential question for modeling agencies. Because besides walking down <laughs> yeah. a runway, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, modeling might go away. There's just no other way to be able to do it in a scalable solution without using AI. Things get existential on The Pitch. Go right now and subscribe to The Pitch wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's say we assume that 
different critical periods can be opened uh, just by changing what someone does shortly after being on a psychedelic drug, right? In other words, whatever you do while on the drug or shortly thereafter will dictate which critical period reopens. You know, what are the implications for what psychedelic-assisted therapy should be doing? And the way that that therapy is currently being practiced, are we really, really missing the mark currently? Let me just correct just a little bit. I think the ideal circumstance is is that the way that you activate the critical period that you want to open, let's say you want it to be related to your PTSD, that the way that the therapists are doing it is, is that before they go on the trip, they are having a couple of sessions with the patient where they're sort of getting in the ballpark of like, you know, what is it that you want to work on? You know, what is the trauma? Do you know what the trauma is? And then the day of the trip, they say, you know, wander around a little bit, find the right memory circuit that's relevant and that you're going to have the epiphany. And I think that allows them to wander, but then still land on the right memory circuit. And then afterwards, the day afterwards, this integration is kind of taking those memory circuits that have become malleable and enabling them to be reworked for the new way of seeing things. Could this be transferred to like almost any skill? Like, let's say I wanted to use psychedelics to, I don't know, get really good at tennis or swimming, right? Like, is there a way you could structure the trip so that it would be really conducive to you learning whatever it is? I think so, but I I don't want to be over flip about this. Like learning to play tennis doesn't happen in one day. Mm -hmm. You know, people who are really good tennis players who learned when they were children, when their motor critical periods were still open, you know, they played for years and years and years and years and they got good at it. And so Mm -hmm. like, I think that, you know, it'll be easier to measure in small discrete tasks. But yes, I do think that these could be used in a sort of beyond the therapeutic side of things, just in the sort of continuing personal growth kind of way as well. Psychedelics are already becoming popular, you know, for personal growth stuff, but also particularly we see it for therapeutic uses. And I'm kind of curious how you think about creating containers for psychedelic healing that will be able to guide people wisely in how to integrate whatever they learn when they're on their trip. Like, it seems to me there might be some risks involved, and I'm curious how you think about what the risks are and how to mitigate them. These are very, very powerful drugs, and they're doing something pretty dramatic to the brain. And so, you know, when we give these drugs, you want to make sure that you are surrounding yourself with the right context, right? So we know from, for example, the stories of Charles Manson, you know, he was taking hippies off the hate and giving them a bunch of LSD and then indoctrinating them into his cult and telling them that they needed to help him at create Helter Skelter by killing a bunch of movie stars, right? And so, you know, psychedelics plus a context that involves a psychopath is potentially very dangerous. And so I think that as we start to move forward, we need to be including this mechanistic understanding of critical periods as a sort of warning to people like, look, these are powerful drugs. They're restoring you to that same state of vulnerability and susceptibility to having your opinions shifted. These are going to make you more susceptible to, you know, peer pressure, more susceptible, more vulnerable to being manipulated. So be careful. 
Yeah, and I think it's just worth noting that, you know, in traditional spiritual communities where psychedelics are used, the psychedelic experience isn't just the mushroom you ingest, let's say, right? There's also mentors and traditions that shape how you make meaning out of that peak experience and integrate it into your life. So I'm hoping that we will have wise facilitators who will help guide people. I don't think there's going to be a one-size-fits-all facilitator. I think depending on what you're trying to achieve, you might need a physical therapist, you might need a psychotherapist, you might need a language therapist. And just like there's, you know, good matches and bad matches in traditional sort of psychotherapy, there's going to be good and bad matches during psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. But the difference seems to be that it's happening really fast and your brain is in sort of hypertherapy mode. And so, you know, the effects can be very strong. So like if you have a bad therapist and you're doing it without psychedelics, you can just kind of move on if it's not working after a month or so, right? But with psychedelics, you know, because you're putting your brain into this open state and you're very malleable, it's going to matter a lot. Okay, Gold, last question for you. I was teasing at the beginning that you were thinking, oh, you know, we're going to solve consciousness, solve the hard questions, right? So do you feel like for you it has shed light on the big philosophical questions that you have been interested in from a young age? Like, what is consciousness? How does it work? Yeah, I mean, I've always kind of had the intuition that, you know, the more we learn about the brain, the more our questions are going to change, more than we're going to get answers to the old questions. But nevertheless, I think that this insight that this altered state of consciousness is phenomenologically overlapping with altered states of consciousness, for example, that religious practices are doing when they go on these retreats, these silent retreats, or, you know, they go and live in a cave. And what's amazing is, is that the mystical states that they achieve by those deprivation techniques are very similar phenomenologically to the mystical states of consciousness that psychedelics achieve. And what's remarkable is, is that both deprivation and psychedelics reopen critical periods, right? And so if you were looking for a neurobiological term to describe what Zen Buddhists call beginner's mind when they get to that, you know, mystical state, reopening critical periods would be it. And so I'm not saying that we know everything about consciousness, but I feel like now we have a mechanistic handle that allows us to ask and answer questions about things that relate to consciousness. Thank you so much for joining the show. This was a really, really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. I had such a nice chat. It was really fun. To learn more about Guldolin's work, go to vox.com slash fp50. You'll find her and 49 other incredible people profiled there, and they'll give you some hope for the new year. Our producer is John Ahrens. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. Our editor is Jorge Just. I'm Sigal Samuel. You can read all of my work in Vox's Future Perfect section. As always, let us know what you think of the episode. Drop us a line at thegrayarea at vox.com. And please share it with your friends on all the socials.
New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays, so listen and subscribe. The Gray Area is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep Vox free by going to vox.com slash give. <laughs>